This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is um, the workplace, the pressures on executives in this unique period that we find ourselves in. And my guest is just a good good friend. We have uh, worked together on the Wheaton Board, Chandran Thomas, who is president of, and I've got to get this right, Northern Trust Asset Management, okay? A short title. And then, uh, uh, and he's very involved in his church. He's a writer. Uh, we've had him come speak. Um, he is very involved with his family and just, uh, and we are, we are co-conspirators on the Wheaton Board. Uh, we work together on the Wheaton Board and have worked together for several years. And so, Shundran, it's just great to have you with us. It's good to be with you, Daryl. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with a good friend. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so let's let's dive in. Uh, I told you my first question was going to be, "What's a nice guy like you doing in a gig like you've got?" So, uh, um, so tell us how how in the, how in the world did you end up being president of Northern Trust Asset Management? How how did, what are the steps along the way that got you there? Yeah, well, well so like like any um, uh, progression of the career that takes you um, to a senior most leadership role in the organization, whether people admit it or not, Daryl, there is a fair amount of timing and grace. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, you know, my interest um, in business started early. I, I, I recall um, when I was in elementary school, my, uh, my mom asking me what I wanted to do. And I would say, you know, I would see these folks on, on television, you know, wearing suits, carrying briefcases. And it seemed like they were doing something interesting. That got refined when I went to high school. It was the first time I was introduced to like any kind of curriculum uh, in business. So I actually got to take an accounting course, an applied economics course when I was in high school. Um, my high school had a program where you could do a co-op. And so I worked for uh, what was then um, uh, Arthur Anderson, in particular Anderson Consulting. I mean, Arthur Anderson doesn't exist anymore. Um, but, but, you know, those were the exposures. And so I eventually went on to, 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 to pursue um, my undergraduate degree in accounting and business. And in that process, uh, learning more about finance investments got, you know, and it's turned on to the world of, of finance. And for a variety of reasons, the dynamic nature of it, the problem solving, um, uh, there were a lot of things that resonated with me. And so it just um, career went that way. But as far as, you know, ultimately getting to the helm of, of running a global business, as you know, a lot of it is not about the X's and O's. And so I was fortunate from, uh, I think, early on with my experiences to have different leadership experiences because ultimately that becomes the determinant, uh, the ability um, to uh, motivate, lead, help develop, inspire, and serve others from a leadership position. So um, I, I take it then you probably had some mentors along the way who who helped you and and affirmed you and 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 pushed you a little bit all those kinds of things. 
Yeah. So, you know, and it's interesting because um, you have different types of mentors, right? So first of all, the foundation starts uh, for me, uh, like, like I, I guess many other people, my parents, right? The foundation that they gave me in a couple of areas, number one, um, the foundation of faith, um, because that's a balance for me in terms of uh, working in the kind of environments that I work in, dealing with um, the, the demands and the issues. I think it's important for anyone um, to have that thing that, that centers them. And so to have that deep abiding faith to, to, to carry myself or live my life in a way that um, I have something that motivates me that's transcendent, it really helps me I, I, in that regard. But also in terms of uh, my orientation towards work ethic, you know, a lot of people who are quote unquote successful, however you define that, it's no magic to it. It, it means that usually they were willing to put in the, the, the extra time or effort. And they definitely instill that in me. But also um, the importance of education and expanding yourself. You know, I was the first person in my family to go away to school hmm. and um, get my uh, undergraduate degree. But interestingly enough, you know, both of my parents went back to school and got their college degrees um, when um, I was, you know, in my teenage years, right? And so it was interesting to see that experience, right? To see my parents make that commitment um, despite being later on in life. And so those kind of things were formative. Of course, when I got into my career, I had first had people who had kind of, you know, the early experience or the technical expertise I needed to understand. Uh, but Darrell, I would say over time, the people who have been most impactful for me from a mentorship standpoint have been those people who share uh, common values uh, and beliefs. Because I really feel like in your career, the most important decisions you make as you matriculate are more value-based. Mm-hmm. That's very, very, <laughs> very true. So... I haven't mentioned where you're located. You're in the Chicago area, right? I am. Yeah. And did you grow up in the Chicago area as well? Uh, I, I did indeed. So I grew up on the south side of the city. Um, so where I live, um, you know, give or take, was about 12 miles from downtown Chicago. Um, and uh, Chicago, you know, it's interesting because I, I've worked and lived other places, but spent most of my uh, career um, in my life here in Chicago. So the most important question I'm going to ask you is White Sox or Cubs? Well, this is, a, is an easy one and maybe a confounding one for most people, but I have always been a Cubs fan. Okay. Um, I, I think it, it goes back to, you know, your earliest impression. So I can remember um, uh, my, my grandfather lived uh, until his 90s, but he was always a huge baseball fan. And I remember being over my small um, uh, uh home that uh, my, my, my grandparents lived in. It was actually a row houses and, and, you know, just sitting there with him uh, on the bed and he just would watch WGN. There you go. You know, and so it, it, and so people say, how did you grow up on the South side? <laughs> <laughs> That's how. Interesting. Yeah. Harry Carey. Wow. So, uh, you know, my, I grew up listening on the radio to the St. Louis Cardinals before the, the Houston Colt 45s and Houston Astros came to Houston. I grew up in Houston. And I would listen to a radio, the 500-watt, you know, uh, station that came out of St. Louis. I can't even remember what it's called now. And listening to Jack Buck call baseball Mm -hmm. for the St. Louis Cardinals. So, uh, yeah, so we're we're kindred spirits in so many different ways. Um, So let's talk about... Let's talk about uh, the the business career that you have, and you do a lot of international work, don't you? I mean, you are even though you're located in Chicago. I think we've talked about the travel that you've engaged in and that kind of stuff. 
Uh, talk about what the international dimension of your work does has done for you. Yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a variety of things. So one, um, the nature of uh, the role. So we have uh, partners, but in our asset management business specifically, we've got 900 partners in 15 different locations around the globe. And you can think of us, um, you know, being in a lot of the places uh, where, where they're chief financial centers. So we've got people on the ground in London. Uh, we're, in, we're in Stockholm, right? Um, uh, we, we are in Amsterdam. Uh, we have presence in Australia, in Melbourne, you know, Hong Kong, uh, Tokyo. So you can think about the, the various places that we are. And so the interesting thing about the experience that I've had is, while you know, finance in some ways is a universal language, to do business, you have to become conversant, not just in the uh, the financial aspects or the investment discipline that we're all, we are in, but you you have to grow to understand and learn and appreciate things about different cultures. So one, I, I love to travel personally. I mean, I grew up. I, I like to tell people up until about the age when uh, I was you know seventeen and went away from college. My 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 view of the world was a, a, a relatively small radius, except when I had to. Uh, you know, catch the bus to, to my school that was in the west, you know, west of the loop in Chicago. And so your your world gets expanded and you, you just have a such a different view and appreciation um, for people of different perspectives, backgrounds. Uh, you, 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 you learn a lot about uh, the world uh, and people um, in, in a way that you just can't reading about in books. Um, and so that's been one of the interesting things about the opportunity that I have um, to, to work with partners. Uh, that's what we call our employees around the globe. But, you know, I deal with clients. Um, and the, the last thing I would say about uh, uh, my, my role, Daryl, it's, it's a privilege. I mean, the nature of what we do, I mean, we're managing money from some of the largest institutions, governments, you know, uh, wealthy families around the globe. So it's not just cultural. You can think about it in terms of nationality and ethnicity. But think about, you know, socioeconomically, um, all of these different elements of it are, are intermixed into uh, the experiences I have uh, in any given year. So how lar- large is the company? I think I heard you say, did you say 900 partners? That means you work with ni- uh, 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 900 people in, y- in your business or is it bigger than yeah. that? So it's interesting. So it's so so I have you know in a sense a dual set of responsibilities. So I serve as president of our asset management business, as you said, Northern mm-hmm. Trust Asset Management. And asset management, we have nine hundred uh, employees around the world, roughly. Um, but I also serve on the management group or the executive management team for the corporation, Northern Trust Corporation. And Northern Trust Corporation is in three primary businesses: not just asset management, but we're in wealth management. We're also um, in uh, the asset servicing business, um, a variety of things, uh, including capital markets activities we deliver to institutions. So the corporation, so with the 11-person management team that we have, including our CEO, that corporation, uh, we have over 20,000 people. So, you know, um, depending on what day of the week we're, 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 we're counting the, pin, the, the, the head count, you know, approaching 21,000 uh, professionals or employees that work for Northern Trust Corporation. Okay, so here's my question, and I'm, I'm saying it with a smile. How in the world do you manage 900 people? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like man, that's like managing a, a mini a mini mega church or something. <laughs> so you know, it's interesting because, right? Like, first of all, what you realize is a. Uh, and you'll appreciate when I say this. I'm going to be um, exacting about words on purpose. You manage processes and you lead people. Mm-hmm. 
So if, if I thought my job was to manage people in the way that people describe it, um, there's, there's no very effective way to quote unquote manage 900 people. Mm-hmm. If you understand your role as leading people, then that's something leadership. I always tell people leadership scales, mm-hmm. right? And so what do you have to do to, to lead an organization with 900 people and help contribute to the leadership of an organization, say with 21,000 people, because those are my respective roles. And, and so there are a couple of things that you realize. First of all, one of the, your most important uh, uh, tools is your voice, right? So, so that positional leadership creates, in a sense, a platform and a megaphone. And, and what you communicate has significant impact on shaping the culture, right? And so one of the things that you have to be adept at is how do you, uh, in a sense, use your voice? What are you communicating every day about the vision, the mission, of the organization about the values uh, of culture. And here's the thing, they don't happen uh, at good organizations by accident, they happen on purpose. Mm -hmm. So you actually have to be very intentional about those things. What do you model in terms of how you spend your time and what you focus on? The next thing is uh, what I like to call, you know, um, uh, the Jesus principle. And what I mean by that is like, if you're gonna have a big movement, right, you need to be very adept at focusing on who's that core or that inner circle, that's usually going to be people that are your direct reports, Mm -hmm. right? That you are trying to work with very closely. And what you're trying to do is help them expand and maximize their own leadership potential, because that's what's going to help lead the organization. Now, the the, the last thing I would say is you can't just focus on, though, just the people that are uh, most proximate to you, because you really want to understand the organization. So the other thing you have to figure out is, while I can't necessarily un, uh, uh, touch all 900 people, how do I um, thoughtfully engage with um, as many people in the right ways around the organization where I'm not only hearing what I need to understand the various levels of the organization, um, whereas I can be empathetic uh, to and informed about how to lead. Um, so those are the kind of things that you have to uh, do um, from a leadership standpoint. So let's let's talk about what I think is a core question for a lot of organizations, and this would be true whether it, it's a for-profit or a non-profit or a church or whatever. And that is, how do you build? How do you? How in your mind do you build culture? I mean, I, I think the culture of an organization is probably one of the most important things that leaders do. Um, and and sometimes they're conscious and aware of it. And the ones that are are probably your better leaders, and and the ones that aren't struggle. Uh, and and so, how do you how do you think about building culture in, in your organization? Well, so so first of all, what what happens is so whether you're actively uh, in a sense working to shape the culture or not, it is a very real thing. It exists, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing is um, the culture is. And it's it's alive, it's animated, it's evolving. And so the culture is not only a real thing, but it's evolving in some way. And so the question is, do you understand that the way that it's evolving? And are you trying to, in a constructive and positive way, influence that that evolution? Because if you don't work on on influencing that culture, the culture is going to shape you and and, and (laughs) usually not necessarily in good ways. Right. So the first thing I, I think that you have to do is you have to be, in a sense, a student of the culture. So a, a lot of times people belong to organizations, you know, like, you know, you know, the, um, uh, uh, the passage that says, you know, we look in a, 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 a mirror or a glass dimly, 
Mm-hmm. I think it's true of people. It's true of organizations. So there's always some dissonance between um, the the intent that we have or the view that we have of ourselves and, and where we are at any given point in time. Right. Organizations are like that. So the first thing you have to do is you have to have a real transparent view of what the existing culture of the organization is. Who are we really? What are ex- our existing norms? And, and the culture is the culture is not the same as your vision. The vision might be something that you are looking at or you aspire to achieve in terms of the business, but the culture has to be a very real thing of where you are at that point in time. Now, when you assess the culture, it's, not, it's just like assessing it, uh, yourself as a person, right? There are strengths that you have. Um, there are weaknesses that you have, right? Some of the weaknesses, so, I tell people, some weaknesses I have, like, I'll have them all my life. Right. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not things that that are going to get much better. In some respects, they don't necessarily need to. There are some things. Right. I have to get better at every day. I have to get better at the way I communicate every day. I have to get better at the way that I engage with people and I empathize. Every day. So so that's different. Right. So identifying those things about the culture and you do that with the people in the culture. So it's 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 identifying, talking about where the culture is, what you want to be. I think the, the tools that you use to do that, I'm big on establishing what I call share values. Everybody has beliefs or values, and they're unique to you. And so it's not that um, everybody's going to have the same. But in a culture, because we're going to have accepted you know, norms or behavior, identifying those which we share that we think are important and communicating those and articulating what it means to demonstrate those is one of the ways that you actually shape a culture. Because you're clearly signaling what's important and, and, and what kind of um, values that we want to put forth and how do those things get exemplified by our behavior. So that's one of the ways uh, that you enhance it. Another way you enhance the culture is, say, for instance, we identify that we there's some things that we'd like to see in our culture. Like some people say we had to have a greater sense of urgency, right? Well, you can't just, uh, you know, speak it into existence. By Don't be urgent. <laughs> right, right. <yeah. laughs> You know what you can do, Daryl? Uh-huh. You actually can bring people into the culture that bring those qualities that help move the culture. So mm-hmm. actually, that's part of my job. Like when I'm thinking about starting with the leadership team, I'm not just looking at the technical skills. I'm saying, what do we need to do and be as a leadership team to maximize our potential? And some of the, the, the skills, including myself and talents, we're developing. And some of those to accelerate that, we can add people to the team that bring right a greater proportion of those kind of qualities these are the kind of things that you do to actually shape and drive culture and so that's a mix and match exercise really in terms of who your team is what the strengths your current team has where you want to go where you're trying to go and and looking for who might supply something that might be lacking you know i I, when i build my team i'm looking for i'm in many cases looking for things that i know i can't do well uh, because someone else has got to be able to do it if i can't do it you know uh and, and and so uh, and, which means that inevitably the the personality differences that that generates it becomes part of your team dynamic that you have yes. to uh, deal with, cope with, depending on the day, you know, right. that kind of thing. But you have to welcome that because if everyone's just a rubber stamp of who you are, you're going to have strengths and weaknesses multiplied in right. ways that aren't helpful to you as an organization. That's exactly right. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me ask you one other thing at a technical level, and that is um, – how um, 
How important is it to be self-critical in, in your leadership? In other words, you know, the tendency is to want to cheerlead the organization and to have it press ahead and have it a sense of advance on the one hand. But oftentimes to advance, you've got to recognize what you aren't doing well. Right. So, I, I, so, so it's interesting because I think there are a couple of principles that, that, that I um, espouse in terms of how you lead and how you communicate, and especially around what you're saying there. So the first one is, I think it's incumbent upon uh, a, a, the leader to do a couple things. One is, you have to reflect reality. Mm-hmm. And so if reality is, right, we, we have goals uh, that we set for ourselves, but we've, we've fallen short or we're falling short of. That's just the reality, right? And so you, you can't pretend that that's not the reality. That actually is not a, 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 a positive indicator. That, that would actually be a failing from a leadership standpoint. But at the same token, there's this tension you walk. So while you have to be able to reflect reality, the other thing that you have to be able to do it in the, at the same way is you have to be able to translate how do you get from, you know, in a sense, the bitter place to the better place. Um, yeah, right. Uh, I, I, I heard somebody uh, say that before, and I, I think it's a, it's a good way to capture it. So you're, you have to reflect reality, but the, re- the reflecting that reality also has to come with a clear sense of how, if it's a place you need to improve, like what actions need to be taken or, 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 or what you need to do to get there. I also think that when you're dealing uh, with people uh, broadly, I do think that leaders, the best leaders, have um, uh, a certain level of optimism, not optimism uh, from the standpoint that, that, that they, don't, they don't see or reflect or even talk about the realities, but optimism from the standpoint of a belief uh, in people in the capacity and the ability of people. I, I think that you, you can actually have actually direct and candid conversations with people, even when you're coaching them, if what's established is trust. That's right. And if they know that you actually believe in them, and so the whole purpose of this is just for them to actually be better and maximize their potential. Now, here's the, 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 where the rubber really meets the road, Daryl. You can't do any of that if you yourself are unwilling to be transparent and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so if you're speaking from some mythical place that you uh, people perceive that you think you've arrived and no one else will get to, all of your credibility on everything that I just said before that statement is gone. No, this is from Mount Olympus, huh? Right. (laughs) But, But if in having those conversations, you can also articulate transparently, you know, at times where you are say, in your leadership journey, or where you are relative to uh, your own performance expectations. I, I, I think it gives you uh, the intellectual uh, and the moral authority to, uh, to truly lead uh, the culture in a candid uh, and in a transparent and a real way. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person 
place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So um, this leads to another element of leadership, which of course is vision. And, and uh, you know, vision involves having obviously some sense of where you're going and where your organization needs to go, but the ability to actually communicate that to other people so that they can see it or at least get glimpses of it and have some sense of what the direction moved towards it is, is also, it seems to me, pretty important. Right. So yeah, so so it's interesting because like uh, one of the things is sort of like what I, I like to tell people uh, about vision. Vision is one of these um, very important things, but there's a, a pragmatic reality to it. Like if I were driving towards something and say, you know, I'm a mile away, the reality is the closer I get to it, the, the clearer my perspective becomes. And so um, while vision is something that's powerful, it's important. Um, the, the perspective that you have, the clarity uh, that you have as it regards that vision is actually getting stronger as you're making progress to it. So I think that one of the things that uh, the quote-unquote visionary has to be able to do, the way I think of it is, yes, you have to be able to articulate and set that compelling vision and say it's, it's that thing, you know, 10 years out. When we do all this, you know, in 10 years, it'll look like that. But if that's all you have, People may, many people may quit long before you. you <laughs> yeah. So, so, so what I like to say, you have to have the vision of the destination, but you also have to have the vision of the mile markers. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so I think people oftentimes miss that pragmatic part uh, of vision. Yeah, that's that's good. I, I like that a lot. And and of course, the challenge of vision, I think, is and and I'm I'm going to transition now real briefly to uh, the fact that we're recording this during COVID. Um, the ability to have vision, but also to be able to adjust to the realities that are thrown your way in the midst of pursuit of the vision is actually. I think one of the most important skills in leading that that you don't get you don't get I say I, I'm going to coin a term you don't get vision fossilized you know it's it becomes so fixed in your mind that you can't flex to what's going on around you we we're in the situation in the center we're in the midst of COVID we're very events based as you know um, you met with us a while ago you saw plated a plated breakfast etc. We're not going to be able to do that for a while. We know that we in the way that we did it. So we've got to reinvent ourselves, and we're forced to do that. So my question is kind of twofold. One, in the area that you work in, have there been a need for adjustments? Uh, uh, you know, beyond the obvious, which is that a lot of right. people are having to work at home as opposed to being gathered together at the office. Right. That's the first thing. And then secondly, how does how, how does how does vision reshaping work i sometimes talk to my team about sometimes you just got to ride the wave you know you, you've gone in a direction and you and you're setting it and you're off and running and you aren't readjusting but you you've got to deal with the wave that your that your surfboard's on at that particular point not that i'm a surfer yeah, yeah. so um so so two parts of your question i'll come back to like the, the wave and the vision because I, I i get the analogy you're using there but start with you know how you know in what ways beyond just being remote like we have 
you know, across our firm, over 90% of our folks are fully working remotely. And my business unit, it's, uh, I believe it's like 96%. Hmm. Um, I, I, I rotate in, like, as you know, I'm, 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 I'm in the office and I do week on, week off. But when I come in, frankly, virtually nobody's, I mean, there's very few people except people in essential roles in the building. But the real, the, here, here is, are, are the more su- substantive, I, I think, changes, particularly inspiring. First of all, every crisis is different, and this is incredibly unique. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been in, in, um, in this particular, in some form or fashion, in financial services for the last 26 years. And I've been through various financial crises or upheavals. This pandemic is first and foremost a health and humanitarian crisis, right? And so um, when you think about the health component, the, the issue is this. This affects people 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, and if I go back to what people call the Great Recession, I think of what was going on in the, you know, 2008 timeframe or things like that, you know, at the end of the day, people could go home from work and then have some sort of normalcy. Um, um, and so, so this is different. And so what I, what I believe it calls for is something that really needs to be there all along. And I've talked to people about the importance of, and I wrote an open letter about this, compassionate leadership. Mm-hmm. And so the way that as a leader, at least good leaders, you have to um, serve or care uh, for your, again, we say partners, employees, I think is, is different than what people are accustomed to. It requires um, an intimacy that is challenged by the fact that we're doing a lot of it virtually. So you have to figure out how to lean in there. Um, you, you have to um, just think about how to help people navigate this environment where, you know, there for, for most of us was a separation between what we were doing in the professional or the working part of our day and what we did, you know, and, and quote unquote, you know, um, our home life or those things. And that's just totally collided. How do you separate them? How do you find time? How do you um, uh, think about people's um, uh, emotional uh, well-being? And again, those are things that are always important, but I don't know that we focused on them in the way that we should. And this is bringing that to a fore. So you don't that's have a one. choice. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of um, uh, the changes. Um, the, the, the other thing is you have to really learn in real time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, certain things that like we, we always say, like we're, we're innovating, we're changing, but like, you know, most of we're not changing that much. And this environment forces you to. Uh, be much more um, adept at changing your work processes, um, your business resiliency approach, all these different things. Um, the other thing that's interesting is it forces questions that, you know, we often easily would have put off. So think about in higher education or in the medical profession, like uh, telemedicine and things like that. It's not like, you know, MOOCs and telemedicine and all these things didn't exist. They take on a very different exactly. um, consideration in this environment. And, and I, and I, and I think that particularly for, um, uh, people in senior leadership roles, whether it's, um, me in the kind of role that I'm in or you in the kind of role that you're in in that particular vertical, because now you got to really make like big, important strategic decisions. It's not just like execute, you know, this, that, there, the other, it's like, we're talking about potentially making a, a meaningful shift 
to our business model. So redesign. Yeah, for us, it's a total redesign. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, okay. Well, let me let me shift gears here, and I want to ask this question, and that is, um, what in particular have been the challenges of being an African American or a black executive in in the yeah. world? I, and and again, we're in a time in which these questions are uh, have become uh, really really important. So, right. just curious to hear your take right. on this. So, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, uh, you know how this goes in, in, in virtually um, every vertical, the, 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 um, in higher learning uh, or in the education sphere, in, in, in the corporate world, um, you name it, it's kind of uh, the same uh, sort of apprehension in, mis- uh, in mixed company. What, what are the things that you don't talk about? Um, and we know uh, among at the top of the list, um, you know, religion is one, um, but 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 race is definitely one, right? Um, and so uh, the the thing, so the, the interesting thing about the experience is a, a, a number of things. Number one, for people um, um, who are I identify as African American, I always uh, recognize my my African ancestry. And again, broadly speaking, you know, blacks, if you think about that experience, there are a couple of things. Like one, racism is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say one of the most challenging aspects of it when you navigate your career is there are the inequities that come because of it. And one of the biggest um, outgrowths is the perception that those inequities create. And so there are lots of people, whether they come to this consciously or not, We'll look at people of color, particularly black people, and 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 really deep down, they don't view them as being equally qualified. And so, understanding that in many instances, that's something that plays in the background of your experience that you have to contend with. Right. Another thing uh, that's interesting in the experience is because of the taboo of talking about race. Think about it; it affects us all. Right. Mm-hmm. But who does it affect the most? The, it affects the most the person that's most disadvantaged or most discriminated against based on race. And so when you have to navigate issues that impact you from a race standpoint, the sort of the unwritten rule in most corporate spheres is you can't talk about. It. Hmm. As a matter of fact, even if you experience some dis- discrimination or disadvantage, it's 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 it's, it's sort of a double whammy because if you are to raise it or talk about it, it actually makes your white counterparts uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so if you think about how you have to navigate that space, the, the other thing that's interesting is, um, and it's something that like people don't talk about. Think about when we assess people; we believe ourselves to be objective and our objective and our measurements objective, but the vast majority of how we evaluate people is subjective. And so, and I think about like over the course of my career, like all the performance reviews I've gotten and things like that. Well, what people don't um, necessarily think about is like if you're working in the corporate sphere, right, where the vast majority of senior leaders historically and presently are white men, don't even take that as inherently bad or good. Just take it as is, right? Mm -hmm. But that means the standard, although not always consciously um, thought about, is a white male normative standard. So oftentimes under the um, perspective that you're being judged based on performance that is absolute, what you're actually being judged on is performance that is relative to a normative standard. 
So there's a culture. So there's a culture element alongside just the professional element, if I can say it that way. Right. So, so there are terms like you've seen people do this research. Like um, they talk about African Americans have to do things like code switching. Right. There mm-hmm. might be a way that I um, communicate with people who share a similar ethnicity that I have to switch in a sense. I, people do it subconsciously because that mode of communication would be perceived as not appropriate for that environment. Um, there are certain studies that say, for instance, African-Americans relative to white counterparts are more expressive. I mean, I don't know in what dictionary more expressive would be bad. It just, uh-huh. It's just different. Right. But understand that when you communicate in a certain setting, because it's not the norm, more expressive would translate to being not good. Right. 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 And so... So uh, I can assure you, if you talk to um, uh, people in your profession or my profession who have climbed the ranks, you ask them how many times they've gotten feedback about what they have to change about, say, for instance, the way they communicate, mm-hmm. regardless if, if, it, if it's you know, natural to them or not. So those are some of the things um, uh, that, that you know, um, are part of that experience. I think what's happening in this moment is we're freeing up the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And so people can talk about those things. And on all sides, um, we become more understanding. Because the, the other thing that you deal with is there's certainly many real um, uh, prejudices that you deal with. But as you know, like all we see is not all there is. That's right? right. And so there are also perceived ones. So there's, there's also the baggage that you, you, you carry, so to speak, from the very real challenges that you deal with as a result of race and the ones that you may additionally perceive. Yeah. Well, that's that, that's helpful, uh, Chandran. And and of course, we've been we've been back and forth on this in a variety of ways because in sitting on the board of a school in which obviously race is an important part of the conversation, we've been <laughs> uh, slogging our way through trying to trying to figure it out and make it work in in some ways and and seek the Lord's direction about how to do a better job of listening and engaging and understanding one another, etc. And when you operate, when you try and operate, if I can say it, flying through a fog without instruments by not talking about it, you don't help yourself very much. And yet, getting to the point where you can talk about it and talk about it um, openly, sympathetically, with a good set of a pair of listening ears in the conversation, you know, uh, on, on each side, it really does help. Hopefully, to advance the understanding, even though there's no way, there's no way I can replicate the experience that you've gone through. There's, I just, I can't do that. And and actually, partially understanding that is an important part of the conversation. I think. Right. You know what? If I could offer this, Adele, you know what's another important part? What what happens is, so so here's the reality. This concept of race, though, is an interesting one, right? Think about it. Right. By and large, it's a relatively current construct of, of, of humanity over time, right? Right. By and large, mostly over the last 400 years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some can say maybe you can go back as far as 600, but most of the last 400 years. The very institution of the concept of race, if you just go back and look at the history, was prejudicial in its inception. Um, there were hierarchies given to, to, I mean, so most people, even though we accept this, it has no biological underpinning. Like uh-huh. for the last 200 years, most anthropologists and biologists agree on only one thing. There's no scientific basis for what we call race. Uh-huh. 
but is such a dominant way, right, in right. which we are now taught to understand and interact uh, with each other. And so because it's a social construct, it's not an objective reality. Like the chair you're sitting in, I, I use this example to, with someone else. It's like you, we were talking about culture. It's an intersubjective reality. It only exists because we agree that it exists. Like if, mm -hmm. if we if we decided tomorrow that it no longer exists, it literally would go away. I can't decide that about cheer. It'll still be here. And so what that means is I actually think we need to take that into account. And we don't talk about the history or that aspect of it. Because it means that either we can challenge the assumption of the construct. It means minimally, because it's an intersubjective reality, we can change the definition of it, how we interact with it, all those different things. They're all within our power. It's not something that just um, uh, accrues in eternity. That's right. And, and I think most people are completely unaware of the history of how this became a topic and what was done as a result of the topic in its early history, et cetera, that's part of the, if I can say it, the underbrush of the conversation that has gone on that most people are not very aware of. And, uh, and as such, uh, you know, uh, is, is a problem. And yet, I think it's very, very important um, in the conversations that I have with people who, who might take what you said and say, see, we just need to level everything out. Uh, it, it, to go, turn around and say, no, that the experience that has, that has taken place is so deep, so long, so wide, and so hard, and so painful, that to ignore it is actually to miss why we are in the moment that we're in. Uh, and I just think that, that that you know, whenever I get to the the discussion that I have today, that's common is, well, you know, we aren't doing what was happening fifty or a hundred or one hundred and fifty years ago. That's the common discussion that I go to. Which my reply is, but we're dealing with the effects of that even now. You know, right. that has not gone away, and uh, and in some ways, it's become more subtle, and which makes it easier in one sense to deny even though the effects of, are still very real and with us. Yeah. And one of the things that, like, I think some, if people actually had an objective view at facts, they would change their view on, on part of what you said. I think part of it is, yes, we're dealing with the effects of it, but, but, but think about something like this. So, so people say, I, I got this question recently. They say, why do people, um, why do black people um, complain so much about the, Chris, uh, the criminal justice system? I said, because it's inequitable. And they say, well, what do you mean? I said, let me give you a fact-based assessment, right? African-Americans, blacks make up roughly about 14% of the population, 13, 14%, depends on who's count, right? You know what percentage of the population of drug users blacks make up? 13%, right? It's just in line with the representation of the population. Do you know what percentage of people convicted of uh, uh, drug-related crimes black people make up? 36%. And of the 36% that are, are, are arrested, rather, for those crimes, 46% are actually convicted, right? So, so this is the point. So when, so when people are trying to figure it out, that's a structural inequity, and that's a function of racism. You, you can't tell me that if I only make up this percentage of users, but <laughs> four times as many almost. So those are the kind of things you want people to understand. Like, people aren't coming up with figments of their imagination, there are some things that are actually systemically biased, um, systemically wrong, systemically racist or prejudicial. 
And so there's an affirmative approach that we need to take to say whenever and however we see inequity, we're a human community. We have, I believe, a moral responsibility to address it. And that's not, I got a bad deal, you know, 400 years ago, and I'm upset about it today. Right. Yeah. And, of course, the biblical picture of justice, one of the metaphors that's used is a just balance. And, right. uh, and, and so what you see is, is that when the balance isn't, when the balance isn't just, when it isn't weighted um, fairly, uh, then that produces a problem and all kinds of things grow out of it. Well, we could, this is a conversation, obviously, that you and I have had before, but that we could continue on, but we're actually out of time. So, uh, um, uh, some might say mercifully, maybe not, but it, 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 it's, uh, Chandra, I just want to appreciate your taking the time with us to, to talk about this. Uh, you know, as I've said, you, you and I have interacted on this stuff for a long time. You've taught me a lot in this area for which I'm very, very appreciative and uh, just really, uh, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Well, again, it's always a pleasure and uh, equally, um, you know, in our dialogues, um, both in terms of obviously your wisdom, uh, but, but it's also the deeds. Um, you, you learn a lot from people from the way they engage, the, the, the way that they uh, re- represent themselves, and, and the way that you've come to this topic in so many ways. Uh, I learn from and I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Chandran, and we thank you for being a part of the table. We hope you'll join us again soon. If you have any topic suggestions for us at the table, please feel free to write us at, uh, at uh, the Hendricks Center at dts.edu, and we will look seriously at, at what it is you would suggest that you would like for us to cover. Thank you again for being a part. We hope you'll see, we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?